So uh, apologetics, today we're going to be looking at the last uh, lesson on the reliability of the New Testament. So remember when we started off, I kind of gave you an apologetic for apologetics. We talked about why we do apologetics. We talked about all the Bible verses and all the commands that um, are given to, to us in the Bible, the Scripture. And we also looked at folks in the Bible who used you know, rational arguments, Jesus, Paul, um, and others. And we talked about the different branches of apologetics, historical, legal, experiential, evidential. We stuck on philosophical for a while, and then we moved to um, biblical. And so that's where we are today. And kind of just a recap of where we have covered. We talked about the reliability of the New Testament. And the first question we asked was, can we even get back to what the authors originally wrote? Uh, Can we reconstruct the autographs? And we said, if we have early manuscripts, reasonably early, and if we have abundant manuscripts, then we can use textual criticism to reconstruct what the authors wrote. So we answered both of those. And then we asked, well, even if I have the autographs, can I trust what John wrote? And again, we want to know, did they write early to the events? And we saw remarkably early. Um, And then we said, are they accurate? So we're going to look at the accurate portion today. Uh, We kind of gave some reasons why we thought they were early. The destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD is not mentioned in any of our uh, books of the Bible. And so, you know, this would be huge and just the center of the culture for Jews and their worship and their government and how they thought God was going to, you know, what he was going to do in that area. And then also for non-Jews, this was a place where Herod had built one of the wonders of the world that people would come and see. So to to have this happen and not mentioned, um, and then to have Jesus predicting it would happen, and then not mention that, hey, Jesus predicted this happened. It just, it's an argument from silence, but it's a huge argument from silence because something of that magnitude would be mentioned. It's a loud argument from silence. What's that? It's a loud argument. Yeah, it's a very loud argument from silence, yes. Um, and then we looked at the timing of Luke's works. We know that Luke wrote Acts, and Acts winds down around 62. But before he wrote Acts, he wrote the Gospel of Luke. And we know that before the Gospel of Luke was written, the Gospel of Matthew was written. And we know that there are some sayings found in the, all of the Synoptic Gospels that even predated them. And so we get earlier and earlier and closer to the time of Jesus. Uh, then we looked at the timing of Paul's rabbinical teaching. Remember in um, 1 Corinthians 15, he says, You remember what I preached to you? I passed on to you what was passed on to me. And he had all of those points about the historicity of Jesus. And he wrote it in 55. He preached in 51. He collaborated with the big three, uh, Peter, James, and John in Jerusalem earlier than that. And then we know that Paul received special revelation from Jesus even closer to um, the time that Jesus died. And then we looked at this remember when, right? We all stood up. Because you can remember very vivid details about things that happened a long time ago when those things were important to you, right? We can all remember 9-11, for example. And after we did this, and I wish he was here today because he and Kelly are out. Um, So this is what we had up here. Trey comes up to me, he's like, you have one of these dates wrong. That's, and, and that just goes to show how we can remember things. This, uh, 40 years ago, Super Mario Brothers released. It was not released 
40 years ago, and he was giving me all the details about it. Uh, um, so this, this was what was wrong, and this is, the, this is the webpage I got it from, and you know, I'm just scanning through, and I have a highlighted list, because I'm looking for something that happened 20 years ago. I'm like, oh, this will be a good thing. And it says the video game Mario Brothers was first released as a Nintendo arcade game. Can you read that from there? In Japan. In Japan. Okay, so I, you know, I, I'm just you know, going fast, and I missed that point. But he, he was right. Um, and so it was later in the U.S., and so he got this date right. And so that's, that is the importance of eyewitness testimony because eyewitnesses are around to look at things and say, no, this is wrong. You got that wrong. And that's what, that's what happened last week. So that, we ended talking about the importance of eyewitness testimony and how Luke clearly says, and we're going to look at that again, this is not made up. Paul said, you know, Festus, this hasn't been done in the corner. You know exactly what we're talking about here. Okay, so the historicity of... Yes. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I haven't even thought about that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Go ahead. So, kind of going back real quick to, you know, Trey mentioned that to you. So, are there writings or anything out there that would be a tray, in a sense, to the things of the scripture? In other words, that are pushing back against this wasn't this way or it wasn't like that? I mean, we're assuming. Right. You understand what I'm asking? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes. So, um, Kruger. Uh, responds to Bart Ehrman in this book, and he would argue that those things didn't survive precisely because they were not valued by the church. He would say the reason why we don't have some of these um, things is because they, they were known to be false. But they would be valued outside the church, especially if they were true. Right, right. If, if they were true and false, uh, if they were true and contra to what the narrative was, then they would be valued by folks who were against this. But they don't survive. And I think what I mentioned before was the closest thing that I can think of to that are the Gnostic Gospels, but they come in 200, 300 years, you know, in 200, 300 they're AD. They're, they're, they're far away. And when you read them, they don't even read like, especially some of the miracle things. They don't read. They're just really wacky. Um, I should get the, I should send out the, the, uh, I think it's the Gospel of Thomas when they go into the the cave where Jesus is buried, and it's just all these weird things. Like there's this 300 foot glowing cross that comes out of the cave, and and some other other weird things that you're like, this doesn't read. It's not just miraculous; it, it reads like kooky. Yeah, like a production. Yeah. yeah. Were you gonna add something? Anyone who's saying like John got it wrong or Luke got it wrong or yeah, and I'm not familiar with that one. So the but the um, 
Remember when we first started this, I gave you, I think, 10 non-biblical accounts that have facts in them. Not all of those are favorable to Jesus. I think one of them even calls him a donkey, um, which was a you know, huge insult back in that day. Um, but the fact that they're writing about Jesus and saying, you know, maybe in a derogatory way, these people eat and drink his blood type of things, those are against, contra to, they're not favorable, but they're writings that actually help us know that this really happened. Like there's, if there's someone arguing against someone, then that someone had to exist, if that makes sense, and had to have done things that would have prompted them to write that. Makes sense. Okay. <clears throat> So, historicity of Luke and John, when historians in the 1800s and the Enlightenment, and they you know, started trying to uh, question everything, which at some level is good, um, they really uh, rejected Luke at first. Luke gives a lot of details, and some of those details uh, they thought were wrong. Uh, he uses a title for the, the governor's, in Philippi that's not used anywhere else. And like, oh, Luke, you're just making stuff up. Well, then later on we find out, no, those folks actually helped Rome in a specific battle, and so Rome gives those people a specific title that no one else gets, and Luke knows that, and he gets it right. And so we have stuff like this written by, uh, we're going to look at him a couple times, but he, Sir William Ramsey is a Scottish historian, uh, older gentleman, but he says, I began with a mind unfavorable to it, Acts. It did not lie then in my line of life to investigate the subject minutely, but more recently I found myself often brought into contact with the book of Acts as an authority for the topography, antiquities, and society of Asia Minor. It was gradually borne upon me that in various details the narrative showed marvelous truth. And so you see this first handout, and we're not going to go through all of these, but all the things that Luke narrates and gets right in a time when there are no encyclopedias, there's no Google, there's no Wikipedia, people don't travel as much as they do today, and so Luke gets all of these things right. Geographical, ports, you know, people, titles, all of these things check out in, in Luke. So you can read through those. Craig Bloomberg, a historian, says that a historian has been found trustworthy where he can be tested, should be given the benefit of the doubt in cases where no tests are available. So if we can see Luke gets this right, this right, this right, this right, we don't, wait, we don't have a way to verify whether this is right or not, but he got all this other stuff right, and we haven't found him wrong yet, so we should trust him where we can't test him. And then if we just look at Luke, so turn... Turn in your Bibles to Luke. Have you ever read Cinderella to a daughter or maybe, I don't know, what, what do you read to, to sons that is a, a fantasy novel or, or story? They don't start out like this. They don't read like this. So Luke 5.1, Luke says, In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zacharias in the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. Does it sound like he's making a, a, a make-me-up story? Uh, chapter 2, verse 1. In those days, 
A decree went out from Caesar Augustus that a census be taken of all the inhabited earth. This was the first census taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone was on his way to register for the census, each to his own city. Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the city of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and family of David. Right? Luke is ground, grounding his narrative in historical, verifiable facts of the day. Uh, 3 verse 1. Now in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, and Herod was tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip was tetrarch of the region of, you pronounce that for me, Aturiae and Trachonitis, and Lysanias was tetrarch of Abilene. In the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zacharias, in the wilderness. Lots of folks. Lot, who, who was in power in the Romes? Who was in power in this area? Who was in power for the Jews? All of those things Luke gives us because he is grounding his narrative in historical fact. So this is just of what we read, the folks who were, were listed, right? right? But that's a lot of different historical folks that are, are verifiable. Luke was also a doctor, and he describes what happens to Jesus, and it was baffling. Jesus sweat drops of blood. And this was unknown, right? Uh, we now have a name for it, hematohydrosis. But it was an unknown medical condition, but it was of curious, a curious to Luke. He's a medical doctor. Here's a phenomenon that's, that's going on, and he records it. And now we, we can uh, verify that that can actually happen. So a couple other quotes from Sir William Ramsey. Luke's history is unsurpassed in respect of its trustworthiness. Luke is a historian of the first rank. He should be placed among the very greatest of historians. So if Luke checks out, we can verify it. Then what's that tell us about Matthew and Mark, the synoptics, right? Largely the same narrative through different lens. Um, So, if we turn our gaze to John, John gives intimate details about private conversations with Jesus. John's gospel is less traveled than Luke, but the geographical details that he gives us are right. And if you remember, north, south, east, and west, while those may have been important, elevation was far more important. So, lots of times, John, they're going to go from Galilee up to Jerusalem, right? up, that's south, but they're going up in elevation. And so John gets all of those right. And you have these 59 different confirmed or historically probable um, events of John. You might need your readers out for this because I just tried to get it on one single sheet of paper, but there they are. So, uh, and we're not going to go through all those, but if John and Luke can be trusted... Let's think about our New Testament, right? We said if we get Luke and Acts, we get Matthew and Mark. Now we have John. We have 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, Revelation. So we got the Pauline letters, the letters from Peter, the letter to the Hebrews. Those are the ones we have left. And these are largely doctrinal letters. 
But the things that are verifiable in those letters are verified. We're probably not going to find a historical archaeological record of Chloe bringing the letter to the Corinthians or Julia, you know, the lady who had a house in Rome where they had a, a church. Um, I don't know, are there any records of Lydia selling purple? Uh, so all, all my kids are New Testament <laughs> kids. Uh, <laughs> um, we may not find those, but those are historical people, and again, it reads out of history. And so I would submit to you that we can indeed uh, trust our Bible. All right, any questions or comments on that? I just think the older I get, the more I'm speaking of Luke particularly, when I explain it to my students that uh, Luke is the most detailed gospel, I believe. And the fact that he was a doctor, doctors are given to details. The older I get, I think, you know, I, when I go to the doctor when I was younger, it's like, okay, five minutes, you're okay, good. But I'm thankful that I have a doctor now that really takes the time investigate everything going on in my life. And I just see that with Luke. And I don't know if we know he was a doctor until we read Paul and he tells us in 2 Timothy 4. Maybe he does say it in Acts, I'm not sure, but just the detail that he brings out um, is amazing. If you want one comprehensive gospel, if you had to choose one, Luke, from the beginning is I, I think the, the, the key comment is that this is all about the reliability of these men as witnesses. Mm-hmm. You know, if they were to be in a courtroom and they were to give testimony, you, you would, if you disagree with them, you would try to impugn their character. You'd say, this man is a liar. You can't trust him. And what we're doing here is we're, we're saying, for all the things that you can verify, mm-hmm. you can trust them. Mm-hmm. All right, now there are things that you can't verify, and a lot of those things are weird. I mean, you know, there's, there's miracles there, and they don't happen every day. That's the very nature of miracles. But if the witness is reliable, then you've got to give them the credit. You've got to give them the benefit of the doubt. Right. You say, okay, this, this person is someone, someone that we should listen to. Right. Now, we might still look at it and go, we think he's crazy, mm-hmm. but he's, he's not a liar. Right. Yeah. Yeah, that's a very good point. We're going to cover some objections that, that um, hit on some of that. Yeah, Tanya? Yeah, so what you're talking about and what we are going to cover is the element of embarrassment. Like, if you're making up a story, you're not going to make it, you're not writing things in that are embarrassing to your story or embarrassing to you. Or, hey, I'm Peter, and guess what? Let's, make, let's just make it up where I'm going to deny this person three times. Right? You, you, you don't do that if you're making up a, a story, right? Yeah. yeah. All right, well, let's cover some objections to this, and it's going to hit on some of the things that um, Tanya and Eddie just said. So it's just historical fiction. You know, they just make me up story that they want to embed in history. Uh, 
but we have independently verified facts, authors endured persecution, torture, and death saying, no, this is true, this really happened, we're not going to recant. Um, historical fiction authors typically don't use real names for their, for their characters, maybe for some of the big characters, but not for their, their um, you know, characters that they're centered on. And um, many attested accounts by nine authors over the 20 to 50 year period. Oh, that should have been changed. I don't know why that changed it in stick, but a uh, 45 year period that the New Testament was written. Oh. Um, some folks say it's just one source. Like, hey, the Bible is just a single source. We don't ever accredit that. <clears throat> we need multiple sources. Well, you and I both know that the New Testament is 27 different sources that we've combined into a single source. Um, each writing is treated as a separate document for historical purposes. All right. And so we're going to bring any questions on that before we bring uh, David Letterman out of retirement. Yes. And he was the really, really crazy... He's the one who came right after Caligula, right before Nero. Yeah. But he is actually considered... He was a pretty successful... Oh, so he's not the one who married his horse? No. Who was that? That was the guy before him, Caligula. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, what I was going to say is that at the first century of Rome, there is a, um, a trend, or like what we would call it a fashion or a fad, for history and for writing history. And Claudius, as an emperor... The only emperor that really devoted himself to writing histories because that was the thing. And very famous historians were all kind of rivaling each other in terms of their accuracy. And I just think of the fullness of time that the scripture describes, and it just so happens to be one of those times where people were all about writing accurate histories. Mm. And I think that that adds to the weight of the histories that were written by people like Luke and the disciples. Yeah, that's a good point. All right. <clears throat> So, uh, this may be uh, outdated for some of you younger folks, but David Letterman used to be a late-night talk show host, and he would have a top ten. And so, top ten reasons that we would say the New Testament writers told the truth. Number one, embarrassing details are included uh, about the authors. Embarrassing details and difficult sayings of Jesus are included. You, you gotta, if you want to be a part of me, you've got to eat my flesh and drink my blood. Ooh, that's, that was a pretty, you wouldn't make that up. Uh, demanding statements of Jesus are included. You've got to take up your cross. But for us, we just kind of skip over that. But a cross was an instrument of torturous execution. It'd be like us saying, you've got to take up your electric chair daily and follow me. Careful distinctions are made between the author's words and Jesus' words. This is what I said. This is, this is the narration. This is what Jesus said. Details of the resurrections included when they would um, not have been invented, like the women coming up and saying, you know, we found this. Thirty historical figures are included. We covered those. Divergent details are included. So, like we said, one gospel author says there's an angel. One other gospel says there are two angels. They're not conflicting. They're just divergent, you know. Uh, we, can, we can explain why that is, but from different viewpoints, different details are included. Authors challenge readers to check out verifiable facts, including miracles. Paul says, hey, you don't believe that we saw Jesus 
500 people saw him at one time, and a lot of those, most of those are still alive today, even though some are, are dead. Miracles described with simple, unembellished accounts. Jesus did this, and he was healed. Contrasted to the accounts in the Gnostic Gospels, where there's all this production, like it's, it's, it's a show. <clears throat> in 10, the authors abandoned long-held beliefs and customs. Think about Paul, transformation Paul makes. Think about the Jews when they start accepting the Gentiles. Think about this idea that, oh no, there's going to, we have an immediate resurrection, an immediate resurrected body. You know, in the Jewish mind, the resurrection, there was no, no possibility of a resurrection body, right? They weren't looking for Jesus to be resurrected. That was at the end of the age. And so they abandoned long-held beliefs and customs, adopted new ones, and died for it, Right? There's lots of people who die for falsehoods, but it's not the people who make up the falsehood who's going to die for the falsehoods. It's people who've been uh, fooled into believing that falsehood. So if you're saying, no, I saw Jesus, I saw him with my very eyes, and you're, the, and you're making this up, you're not going to continue to hold to that in the face of death and persecution. All right, so the conclusion, the New Testament stands up to every level of scrutiny that can be aimed at it. And... We could probably put a wager out there, but we're coming up pretty soon to Easter. And right before Easter, almost always, there's going to be some hit piece in the news about, and they just save this up, you know, like, oh, this person found blah, 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 blah. And, and you check it out, like, this is not, this is not uh, good news. This is not newsworthy. But there, there are blasts that are made against the New Testament, against Jesus, against the historicity of him yearly. And they don't stand up to good scrutiny. <clears throat> uh, and if anyone denies the New Testament is an accurate historical account, if you're going to be consistent, you must deny that you know any historical account. Because if you're going to say, ah, we can't trust the New Testament, then we don't know anything that Plato or Socrates or Aristotle wrote. We really can't trust the Iliad from Homer. All that stuff we've got to say, ah, it's interesting, but we can't trust any of it, right? We don't know that if Caesar really existed or not. All right, and that is all for apologetics. So I'll give you a little bit back of uh, time. And then uh, any closing comments or questions? Over, maybe over the whole series. Yeah, Joel. Michael, I'm just curious. Uh, Bart Berman, can you talk a little bit about him? He seems to have been very influential. It might be a name. Mm-hmm. He's going to push back on a lot of this. Yeah, so Bart Ehrman was a grad student uh, with, and I can't remember his name. Maybe someone else knows his name. Um, but a grad student to probably the best known, most uh, accoladed. It's probably not a word. You can tell me what the acclaimed uh, textual critic for the New Testament. Studied under him, authored papers in favor of the New Testament. That guy passed away, and Bart Ehrman comes onto the scene and he wrote um, several, I think two or three, popular level books um, questioning the reliability of the New Testament. Misquoting Jesus was one, and there, I think there's a couple others. Curiously, in his professional writings, he's much, so the writings that are like for other PhDs to write that go into you know, scholarly uh, magazines and stuff like that, 
those don't question the New Testament, right? It, it's like it's just on that level of I'm a PhD talking to another PhD. So it's only to the popular level where it's not going to get peer reviewed, where he starts bringing up all these questions. All these questions. So you may have um, that may be one insight into the reliability of, of Bart Ehrman's questions. Um, but yeah, so he he tells you a lot of what I've already told you. There's 400,000 variants across the manuscripts, and there's only 138, 136 words in the New Testament. And he just gives you that without any context, hoping you, who are not familiar with the largesse of our manuscripts, uh, would just be, this is, this is overwhelming. How could we trust the New Testament? But then we said, we took that 400,000, and we said, well, 95% of those make no difference at all in anything that, because um, it's like word order, Jesus Christ, Christ Jesus, uh, different spelling. And then 95% of what's remaining are variants that can't even survive first blush, like they're single variants, or you know, there's places where we see in a manuscript a whole line is left out. If you're copying a manuscript, you look at line one, line two, line three. You've been copying for three hours. You skip line four. You go to line five. That counts as a variant. But we know exactly what happened. It's not like we think that that line. So then we're left <coughs> with, I think, it's 200 variants now where we actually have to use the tools of textual criticism to try to distinguish which one was in the autograph, which one wasn't in the autograph. And we can, we can figure that out for 150 of those. So then we're left with those 50 what we call significant variants that we don't know. Is it, there's good arguments on both sides of the table on whether Jesus was moved to compassion or whether he was moved to anger when he healed someone's hand, right? That, none of the other verse is in question. And so those 50 significant variants, they don't change any of the narrative. They don't change any of the historical facts. They're just some words that we wonder whether they're in there or not. Now, someone like Bart Ehrman is going to take out, um, I believe it's 8th chapter of John, the woman caught in adultery. They're going to take out the longer ending of Mark. And he lists in the back of misquoting Jesus that the reasons you shouldn't trust your New Testament are the top 10 verses that are printed in your Bible that weren't actually there in the beginning. But that's not news to any of us because we have brackets around them. This is not found in the earliest manuscripts. This is not found in the best manuscripts. You can take those out. Like I said, we have 101, 102% of the Bible in our hands, not 99% of the Bible. And we take those out and it doesn't change the narrative. And so if the odd thing is, if I know for certain this wasn't in the autograph, then I know for certain everything else was in the autograph, and it's trustworthy. So he has made a lot of money from pushing this narrative, writing these books, and um, it, he would say that he fell away from Christianity. He would say he had a true belief um, But when he describes Christianity, it doesn't hit right. Like, so I don't think he really knew. It's like someone, someone will say, well, I used to be in this club, but I have devoured that club. And then you describe the club, and you get a whole bunch of the details wrong. 
then you go, were you ever really part of the club? And that's kind of the thing with Bart. I, he fell away for some reason, but it's hard for me to, to me, this uh, New Testament reliability thing is just a way for him to check out for some other reason. So I, I don't know exactly what his motivation is unless it's monetary, but all of the people doing real textual criticism would say, you yeah, know, the New Testament is reliable. Now, historians are going to, just like Eddie said, they're going to discount the miracles um, because it doesn't fit into their frame, framework of reference. And so you may have the mass hallucination theory for the 500 seeing Jesus. That's more ad hoc than you know, the fact that all people see him because we don't have any record of 500 people sharing the same hallucination at the same time and touching, you know, bodies and eating fish and all that stuff. So it's, they do come up with some odd ways around it, but they're not good, good explanations. I don't know if that answered your question or if there's any follow-up questions. No, I think it just helps gain perspective and realizing yeah. boy, there are some voices out there that... Yeah, yeah. He's got a good website. He's in North Carolina. Yeah. Well, he has already debated people who are much more credentialed than I. Um, <laughs> uh, I'm like a second or third tier. I'm giving you what the, those people say. And so, uh, but yeah, I think uh, Mike Kruger has debated him. Um, and James White has debated him. And so if you listen to those debates and the, the reasons that are given, you find that you know, if, if you uh, are a rebel against God, you might believe what he's saying. But if, if you come there with an open mind, his arguments don't stand up. Yeah, and I haven't ever thought of it that way either, but hopefully apologetics does put these tools in your toolbox. And uh, like I said uh, probably four lessons ago, you may go through life and have three of these conversations, but you want to be armed and be able to at least give some good, solid reasoning and be able to say, oh, I can't answer that, but I'll get back with you, or let's talk about this again, and you give enough of the information that, that you can kind of give them some hooks. Yeah, Carrie. Yeah, and that's one of the things that comes up a lot when people are talking to him, like, Bart, why, why does your popular level work not match your, you know, PhD level work? Come to different conclusions, well, because the other PhDs are going to hold your feet to the fire and, and it's not going to get published. <laughs> uh, all right. Oh, yeah, one more, Andy. Really quick. I mean, you kind of hit on it multiple 
science, but I think it's important to remember, and even talking with people that would be skeptical, is that textual criticism, and it's my, not, or it's my understanding, it's not specifically to determining the validity of the Bible. It's a practice applied to any old work to get back to the original. Correct. Yeah. So they use textual criticism to get back to the original of the Iliad. They, yeah. yeah. So all. Yeah. So when we have ancient writings and we have a lot of copies of those writings, and we detect variants, just like if you had a recipe of your great grandmother's cobbler that you wanted, and you there were differences amongst the kids, you might get all those recipes together and go, Why do you have half a cup of sugar and everyone else has a cup of sugar? It was probably a cup of sugar originally, right? And so you could reconstruct that recipe. That's, that's all they're doing with the textual criticism, but on a little bit uh, more detailed level. Yeah. All right, let's pray. Dear Father, we just thank you uh, that you've given us all this evidence. Um, we know that um, you can use this evidence to open our eyes. Um, but we thank you that uh, you took special interest in each one of us and you called us, you knew us uh, before time and you made us your own. And we just ask that you would help us to uh, take what we've learned here, that it would strengthen our own faith, that we could um, use it as we talk with others and that you would use us as um, beacons of hope to a dark world and that we would um, just be able to reflect the light of your son and the truth of your son and, and what he did uh, to a world, and that you would bless those efforts and that we would uh, draw folks to you and that we would uh, teach them to obey all that you've commanded in your word. We ask this in your son's name. Amen.